Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to episode 26 of Education Suspended. I hope you all had a great winter break. Some of you actually probably are back at work today on January 3rd, and some of you might have a little bit of a longer break because you might have started later. For us in the Fifers, it was... It's quite an interesting winter break. We actually lost my aunt unexpectedly. Felt that I would share that just because it actually ties into today's episode. Auntie Verna passed away. We actually talk about this connection to memories and places. And it was just really ironic listening to this episode and remembering Taylor Lane in Stoughton, Wisconsin, and going to visit Oh, all the time in my childhood, they had a creek behind the house. I'm actually closing my eyes as I'm saying this. Orchard. I'd get on the tractor with Uncle Quinn. So it was just a, I kind of needed today's episode. But we connect with Dr. Sarah Bexel, who's just a fantastic human. And she teaches us about this concept of humane education, which I love. And I really think that this could be something that we lean into as we try to evolve our system and make it more equitable for all of our kids. She shares her experiences, her stories. We look at how do we ensure that all needs are met humans, animals, and the environments. And again, like this notion of attachment to place and how that influences us. And what does that attachment to place look like? I guess when equity is non existent. Again, Happy New Year, and thanks for joining us. Sit back and enjoy episode 26 of Education Suspended with Dr. Sarah Bexel. Dr. Bexel, thanks for being here. It's good to see you. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> we, uh, we were discussing, it's been a long time. I used to actually teach with Sarah at the University of Denver. I'm no longer there doing other stuff, but she is still fighting the good fight. But it's an honor to have you joining us. Thanks, Jess. And we hope to get you back at the University of Denver soon. (laughs) Someday, someday soon. (laughs) So we'd love to just have you start, kind of tell your story. How did you get to where you are today? And talk a little bit about maybe your own experience as a student and the influence that that had. Thanks. Sure. So let me guess my career journey started in undergrad, like most, like it does for a lot of us who are lucky enough to have the privilege to go to school um, and higher education and really thought I was going to be a veterinarian. And this is a funny story but um, learned I couldn't do blood or cutting or injections. Anyway, <laughs> quickly uh, moved to bi- uh, biology and environmental studies um, and was really passionate, especially about animal behavior and went on to graduate school uh, to get a master's in biological anthropology. And I studied primate behavior. Absolutely loved that degree, but that's also the degree where uh, I started to learn about uh, the extinction crisis. Um, I grew up mm-hmm. in a very naive time um, and did not realize that humans were literally wiping out species on my watch. Uh, And I really um, took that to heart. I was very upset, very sad, and very angry uh, and decided I needed to shift gears. I thought I was going to spend my life in the forest with monkeys. um, And that would have been 
a blissful existence, I am sure. But I felt like I needed to use this one shot at life to become an educator, to um, help other people to know what was happening on our planet. Because I felt just that I had been in the dark um, in my career and in my life. And I wanted others to know what was happening so that we could all take action to protect this amazing planet and all of her denizens. And so I got a, went on and got a second master's in science education and then a PhD in, in early childhood education and really focused uh, my entire doctoral work on how do we facilitate the human-animal bond in order mm-hmm. to um, create a conservation ethic in our young people. And so that journey took me to working with many critically endangered species and kiddos, both in the United States and in China, um, specifically for 20 years. And then I had the amazing opportunity to join the team at the Institute for Human Animal Connection at the University of Denver, where I am the Director of Humane Education. And I also serve as a clinical associate professor teaching most of my courses in the area of ecological justice to our Masters of Social Work students. Good Lord, I feel like that's a wrap. That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is inspirational, Sarah. Thanks. It's definitely not been boring. That's that's an understatement. So let's talk a little bit about kind of humane education. What what is that? Why are you so invested in it? Let's just start with that. Yeah. So a lot of my work up until about 2004, when I discovered humane education, had been in two other sort of domains of of specialized education that being environmental education and conservation education. Um, I'm still both passionate about both of those domains, but what I love about humane education is is that it's all included. So humane education has a three-pillar approach to addressing issues of human rights and human health and well-being. One, the other is animal protection um, and, of course, conservation and the protection of the natural environment or environmental ethics and preservation. And the realization that the health of all three of those domains are completely and utterly interconnected. So if we cause harm to humans, to other species, to the natural environment, all three of those domains are harmed as well. But on the flip side and the beneficial side and why I love humane education is, is if we take really the ultimate care to take care of all three of those domains, protecting human health and well-being, protecting the health and well-being of other species and of our environment all thrive together. So that's why I feel very passionate about humane education. It's also very much founded in critical thinking, systems theory, as well as sort of sometimes we call it project-based learning, place-based learning. Those are all incorporated as well. Um, How does attachment to place influence what our children are thinking about the world around them, creating those emotional connections, whether it be to the land, to other species, to each other, to our communities? Um, How does that enhance our learning, make us feel more connected? And very importantly, feeling very connected to protecting all that is going on around us, um, keeping everyone healthy and happy. I'm running one of your quotes by... Sure. You just really said it. The battle to protect the environment is won or lost in childhood. And I think we all believe that. I'm, I'm where do you see that starting or where do you see the most effect or what's been your experience as you have tried to live out that truth? Yeah. Well, we know, and and really my inspiration behind that quote, I love sharing this just because I think she always just deserves such great honor, um, was Rachel Carson, who wrote a wonderful book about this. It's called A Sense of Wonder. Um, I highly recommend it to anyone. And and she really prompted my thinking. And in fact, she's the reason I went and got a, a doctorate in early childhood education versus any mm-hmm. other degree. And it's because children are sort of naturally curious about other species, 
about the natural world and are in constant comparison and learning and absorbing all that's going on around them. And they're especially attuned to other beings that we can perceive as having sort of agency um, Uh and choice and feelings. And so what happens as we grow older is, you know, of course, teenagers are more concerned about other people and that's great. And that's super important developmental period. But then as we then continue to get older, unfortunately, our society starts to teach us that other animals, other uh, in the natural environment are not so important that getting good grades is important. And that is important that getting a good job so that we, and that is important in our, the current way that, that humans run, run our, our societies and our systems. And that's all fine and good, but it is also at the same time starting to teach us that other species and the natural environment are not important for us to attend to. Um, And so, but what we want to do is develop that human animal bond and our bond to the natural environment so strongly in early childhood when it's a natural thing for happen. It's Mm -hmm. not sort of being imposed on them saying, oh, now you're, you know, 21 years old and you really need to care about the environment. That that kind of a rude awakening for for young people. Whereas if we nurture that throughout while it's a natural tendency for them, then hopefully it won't be as surprising or shocking. What happens so much, you know, all of my students now are graduate students. They've been through their K through 12, pre-K, K through 12 and undergraduate. And now I'm teaching them about climate change. I'm teaching them about mass environmental destruction. I'm teaching them about the sixth mass extinction. And they're very frustrated and angry. Why, Why didn't I know about this? Why didn't I think to care about these things? And now these crises impact my life. And maybe, you know, if I choose to have children, my children's life might be really in jeopardy. And why why are we waiting until graduate school to get them to care and get them to sort of develop behaviors that allow for nurturing of the natural environment instead of destruction of the natural environment? Earlier, the better. Yes, the earlier, the better. <laughs> Literally from day one, you know, I know infants aren't maybe, we don't think of them as, as paying, a, a, you know, close attention and whatnot. But yes, always speaking respectfully, always helping them to understand how our lives depend on those others and uh, upon the natural environment. I think we shortchange our itty bittiest humans to think that maybe they're not ready to learn these things. But of course, they're absorbing their little sponges. And so, always making sure that 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 dialogue about them is instilling respect and adoration um, and devotion to their protection. I love what you just said, the attachment to place and its influence on us. Can you go a little bit deeper into that? What does that attachment to place entail, especially maybe from an educational lens perspective? So there's lots of research, so many different domains in the social sciences look at the attachment to place as being critically important and in the environmental field. And then especially when we think about, you know, the species then that share that space with us as we grow and develop and become, you know, more integrated and thinking about our community community is oftentimes that place is what we fall in love with. It's what provides our comfort, our safety, our security. We don't often think about it like it's not spelled out for us. But if we all of us on on our call today, if we think about the place that we grew up, no matter what that place looks like now, we have fond memories because we grew up hopefully in a safe, secure environment with adults who loved us, our favorite cheese to climb, our favorite places to play games, the friends that we had there. That attachment to place is very intimately connected to who we are today. We do not want to see that place destroyed. We want that place to be a healthy, thriving 
place that is still providing mm-hmm. safety and security to the people who have come behind us. And so what we want to enhance through humane education, through place-based environmental education is that att- attachment to place and allow children to love that place, to point out to them, look at this beautiful environment that we, and, and not every child, unfortunately today, as we all know, has the ability to grow up in, in a safe environment, in a secure environment with healthy, natural spaces to play in and, and to grow up in. Uh, so yeah, and that's that's kind of a mixed bag there. Sorry on that one. But no, it's just- and I think that's kind of what I was thinking about of like all the inequities that we are seeing right now. I'm just wondering, uh, is there research out there about access to healthy food, access to stable housing, safe neighborhoods? What is that attachment to place like and how does that influence then them going to then the community schools? I don't know. We, we talk quite a bit about the connection of belonging to learning. When you end this educational setting, if you feel that you belong, mm-hmm. you tend to do better. But I just wonder if all of this is kind of connected to some degree. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb because I don't know about the research in this area, but I think if we just put ourselves through almost like a thought exercise and I'm just going to put it out there and and see what you all think. If we think about healthy attachments, which all of us have had to study in our various domains of of study and then seeing it sort of roll out, if you think about healthy attachment to parents or to siblings or to any caregiver, when there are disruptions and that those, you know, human to human relationships um, are interrupted, whether that's by neglect or abuse or, you know, inability to even be home because you're working three jobs to to pay the bills and put food on the table. We know that those cause disruptive relationships and can impact children throughout the rest of their lives. So if we put that onto the same thing, and again, this is a thought exercise, I'm just putting it out there to an an environment that a child grows up in that also does not provide secure health, that they're breathing toxic air, that they're only able to play on concrete, that the ability to access healthy food is non-existent even. We know so too many children. I mean, the numbers are are mind-boggling, are growing up in those insecure places throughout our country and, and of course, countries throughout the world. Then what does that mean for attachment to place? Maybe those those children don't ever have that experience of having that healthy attachment to place. So I'm more asking the question than I'm saying that I know, but I think I would hypothesize that that probably also creates insecure attachments to to, yeah. to place and a sense of insecurity that could manifest in different ways for different children. And I love that you tied it to attachment because what we know, yes, is that from the, the acquisition of skill, that, that base acquisition for all of us is attachment. Mm-hmm. And that is the foundation for so many core strengths that we're going to develop. And so that is, to your point, not secure, whether it be personal but now I love this new element or environmental that there, there can be ramification. I don't know why I thought about that way. Thanks. And, you know, and as you were talking, Jess, it also made me think about attachments to other species. You know, I can really just talk about my experience um, living in China for a very long time is, you know, that children don't even have the opportunity to see other species. If they do, to be frank, it's rats and cockroaches. And, you know, and, and then the way that animals are then talked about with young children are not positive because those are animals that their caregivers are afraid of. And so that just makes me now think about, gosh, how hard is it to create healthy attachments to other species in our impoverished environments? Yeah, the the equitable piece. You know, there's that cultural piece. It's interesting when I go down to Southern Chile to visit my family, uh, this is what's coming up when I think about this cultural difference in regards Mm -hmm. to the animal piece. 
Mm-hmm. When it comes to my own expectations, so they have they have cats, they have dogs, right? They live right out kind of in the middle of the of the Andes Mountains. I remember visiting for the first time and all the dogs just stay outside, right? I was going to open up the door and let the dog and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, what's the family dog? They're like, no, the dog sleeps outside. I'm like, what if it rains? I'm like the dog will be fine. It's a dog. But when we come up here and I'm pretty sure my dog believes that this is actually his house and we are renting from him. Like that is <laughs> fairly certain. That's the mindset of Chester these days. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, their connection to the land mm-hmm. is so much stronger than I feel my connection to the land was up here, up, you know, being raised up in Iowa. Yes. And so just those cultural perspectives, depending on what pillar you're talking about, I think is influential. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I, and when I was thinking, because it's what I've seen in China and I haven't seen that in the United States, but I'm sure that there are millions of children in America that are also growing up in these concrete jungles that we've built to provide some semblance of safety and security. And again, it might be that the the relationship with other species are similar to what I've experienced in in China, where it's the critters that do thrive living um, in close proximity with us, like the cockroaches, rats, and mice, because we feed them really well in those kinds of environments. Can you tell us a little more about your China environmental camp experience? Because I I found that pretty fat. I read that some of that background stuff, and that was fascinating to me. Thanks for reading my paper. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, you know, you'd write, sometimes we write papers and we don't know if anybody will ever <laughs> find them. To be honest, in the development of those camps with my Chinese colleagues is how I discovered humane education. Um, and one of the reasons that I was really struggling with environmental education at the time, which is what really I felt I was practicing back when I first started working in China in 1999, there was something missing. And it, a lot of it was those emotional attachments, whether it was to other species or to the natural environment. And in the States, whenever I had been doing that work, you know, and a lot, I was living in Georgia at the time and lots of natural spaces for people to be outside and and to enjoy. And people had big backyards and all of that. And all of a sudden I got to China and there was none of that. The kids were, were, were literally growing up at the time in a city of 8 million people. That city is now 16 million people. And it is just concrete. And I realized, wow, these these children are not even having the opportunity to meet other animals, to spend time in a forest, to walk on a trail. All of that would have been utterly foreign to these children that, that we worked with for so many years. So what we did is we I did a lot of research. I was working on my my doctorate in this area. I was working with amazing teams of both um, conservation educators, environmental educators, and classroom teachers um, that we all came together to create this camp. And what we based the camp on is what we call a continuum of care. So children first started to meet individual animals and met them as individuals, mm. not as interesting. That's a panda that eats bamboo and lives in the mountains. No, that is Yaya. She is the mother of, you know, now I think at that time she had had eight cubs that she had raised successfully, that she was a great mother, that she actually didn't like to be around other adult pandas, but that she was wonderful at raising cubs and so wonderful at raising cubs that if another mother rejected her cubs, she would take care of them too. And so telling personal stories about animals to facilitate that human animal bond, that animal isn't a thing, but it's someone 
that we can learn about. Just like when I meet a new person, I want to know, Steve, how are you today? Have you had a great meal? Is your family healthy? I wanted children to start learning how to Mm -hmm. meet other animals, just like we meet and start to bond with other people. So meeting animals as individuals, then also learning about species-specific care and that species-specific care is still isn't good enough. Every individual needs individualized personal care. So maybe uh, they were meeting a rabbit, but we had three rabbits in the program and each rabbit had individual needs, not just Mm. I'm a rabbit and I eat hay and I eat, you know, pellets, but that each one of those rabbits were different. So, and and then the continuum of care then also kept progressing too. So hopefully then children would fall in love and literally we would use those words. I'm not shy about talking about love. Then you care about those individuals' environment. We want to make sure that that environment for them is safe, healthy, happy, secure. Or then then taking it to that very last level of the camp is if we care enough about individual animals and specifically wild animals, how do we make sure that we are doing everything that we possibly can to make sure that animals in the wild also have their species-specific needs, individual needs, and their environmental needs taken care of them? And so that's then moving towards that conservation ethic. But what I realized is I couldn't, you know, in so much that we do in the United States, at least at that time, and I think I made mistakes earlier in my career making an assumption that that the youth that I was working with already cared and loved animals so much that they would want to change their behavior to protect animals in the wild. And through humane education, I learned we first have to allow them to love other species, love the natural world before we ask them to save them and maybe make what humans often are think of it in this way, makes personal sacrifices. Like maybe we shouldn't go to the mall every weekend and buy a bunch of stuff that we don't actually need. Maybe we should walk to school instead of asking mom, you know, caregivers to drive us to school and create a a greater carbon footprint. Humans tend to think, see that as a sacrifice. And what we wanted to, to do is allow children to grow up thinking and considering our personal impacts on others instead of waiting until they were in, you know, teenagers, uh, hardest time because teenagers really want to be cool and have all the stuff that makes them cool. Right. And then, or even adults, um, but to be constantly as they're being raised to think about the impacts that their lives have. And then when they get older, hopefully we can start having the hard conversations about policies because the systems that we live in today are so massively destructive. Was that what you meant by cognitive empathy? Was that part of what you're getting at with these kids? Yes, exactly. And we we really tried to talk about both um, cognitive and emotional empathy. So the emotional empathy was sort of that beginning piece. And so putting themselves into the to the pause um, of, of other species. And then the, the cognitive empathy is just the knowledge that other species are sentient. So so there's kind of two things that are happening that that roll into each other. That emotional empathy is starting to put myself into the paws of those rabbits or those pandas or whatever whatever animal that they were considering in the moment, but also that that cognitive empathy or what we often call belief in animal mind or we love calling it bam um, just cuz it pops a little. Um, but that belief in animal mind, I have to cognitively know that other species have feelings like me in order to instill that respect and and confidence because our society wants to teach us that other species don't have, have feelings. It's really becomes inconvenient if we think that that cow that we might enjoy as a hamburger 
has feelings. And so it's we we want to disrupt that a little bit and give them the knowledge, which is that cognitive empathy and belief in animal mind or belief in animal sentience that we feel is really important, whether it's a panda or a cow or even a bumblebee. All um, of that is important for, for children to be able to have that knowledge of, of their sentience. You talked about like the three rabbits, though they look the same and they're all rabbits. We just can't assume that everything's identical because I think that parallel analogy is kind of what I'm passionate about in education. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. are humans, they're students, they're all third graders. Yeah. They all need the same thing. And it's like, that's kind of what we're pushing against, right? It's like this one size fits all approach is what got us in this mess in the first place, right? Like how do we step back and ensure that all of our students' needs are met individually? It's the same concept. Absolutely, Jess. I thought, in fact, it made me almost tear up just thinking that, yes, we have a one size fits all sort of framing for our K through 12, even in higher ed. I think we're we're struggling with that. So I think, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, excuse my pun, but we were talking (laughs) about rabbits. I just couldn't avoid it. There we go. That was on purpose. And you know it. You know it. You You can't see me, but I'm playing the drums. (laughs) I'm just going to mute Jessica. Oh, yes. Jamie, cut her off. (laughs) Blessed be. All right. All right. Let me just say one thing. But yes, higher ed is is so influential. And we talk about that regularly. I think humane education is great. I think the, the reason I love it is that it's it's like a generational solution, right? We're trying mm-hmm. to get to these kids early and higher ed just it's missing the boat, right? There's, there doesn't seem to be a generational piece to it now. Nothing's really changing, so. I gotta ask more about, <laughs> I, I love this whole connection to place because mm-hmm. I'm kind of half of a farm kid and our whole family will just refer to that place as the farm. It's like the place we're all connected to. So whether it was the kids in China or whether it's our kids here, when they are growing up in a, quote, concrete jungle, how is the transfer or how do we make the transfer of the love of place for some of these kids when they don't have it naturally, you give it to them in a camp-like setting or a school-like setting, are they then able to hang on to it? Or how do they transfer that just into daily life so that they can maintain that connection? That's a great question, Steve. And I, again, I'm going to not totally go out on a limb, but but I one of the things that we do know from the literature is that um, summer camps, you know, no matter where that might be, especially nature-based summer camps, of course, there's science camps and chemistry camps, but I'm talking about sort of the outdoor education camps leave long lasting impressions on children. They fall in love with that place. They fall in love with the their camp counselors. Oh my gosh. I remember being a pen pal with one of my camp counselors for years after going to camp, you know, and so much loving that place, the natural environment, the frogs we met, the horses that we got to brush, you know, all of that was made a deep impression on me. But we also know from the literature that that those are memories of being in the natural world with uh, with peers that we loved um, and learned from and with, with camp counselors that we loved um, and in being in beautiful, natural, healthy, healthy, thriving places. And so, and that those experiences are remembered all of our lives. 
And so I think that that emotional attachment and the learning that happens in those spaces do transfer into other settings that we could then capitalize. I think what happens is maybe then, you know, I think in, in family and households and things like that, maybe if it's, if it's talked about, it's nurtured and supported by, by parents, but oftentimes in our school systems, maybe we don't ask children to draw upon those memories and remember how special those places were um, enough to maybe sort of nurture that conservation ethic or that commitment to living and designing our lifestyles in ways that are more supportive of of keeping those places protected. You know, like I'm even thinking about your farm, Steve, and clearly I've, I've never been there, but you know, I have a, my students do a thought exercise um, often when we're talking about even you know, sort of traumatic experiences that people go through when they lose their their place, whatever that might be, due to things like natural disasters, due to climate change um, that are ripping through farmland all over the world. And I have them think about their favorite place as a child and place outdoors as a child. And of course, every single one of us can think of that place. Mm-hmm. And then this always feels like I'm uh, kind of traumatizing our students a little bit, but it's, these are jarring times. And so sometimes we do do exercises that are jarring. And I ask them to think about what if something happened to that place, you know, and not to totally traumatize you today, Steve, but just imagine for your family, Mm -hmm. if climate change completely desertifies that farm that you all have this incredible attachment to, even though that might be jarring, maybe that's something that would spark all of us to say, or, you know, at least folks in in your family to say, oh my gosh, I need to really think about climate change and what it might do to that amazing place that I grew up in. I don't want it to be destroyed. I don't want it to be ruined, you know, or flooding, whatever that environment might be more prone to in terms of Mm -hmm. the, the impacts of climate change. And so that attachment to place is something I think we don't leverage enough in our work to get people really activated into thinking about protecting this amazing planet that keeps us alive. And Sarah, you keep talking about attachment because it's attachment to place, but what's coming up for me, especially in regards to the environmental places in particular, is that they're, they tend to also be rooted in, in a heavy sensory environment, right? So again, going back to Steve's farm, you're very surrounded by nature and there is that sensory component. And we know that that innately actually helps us feel more regulated. We sometimes feel safer in these places without even, even being able to articulate why, right? Like we're kind of spoiled here in Colorado, just driving to the mountains. Even if I don't get out of my car, right? Like I, I feel a, a shift in my own sense of just being in, the, in that place, in, the, in that type of environment. And I think the senses as an active ingredient along with attachment is just as powerful. And we haven't really talked about it, but it kind of goes to, you know, one of the big things that we used to talk about when we had our grad students coming in, you know, one of the first things was that biophilia hypothesis, right? And you, you, you actually say, I mean, you can probably say it better than me, but I think it's just kind of that innate belief that as humans, we are kind of wired to be in connection with the, the broader natural world. I don't know if you would say it, probably will say it better. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's funny as you were talking, Jess, that's immediately what I thought. I was like, gosh, we should talk talk about the biophilia hypothesis. But absolutely, I mean, what we know, I mean, which is so incredible that we've in many ways forgotten it, but we as a species evolved needing for our own survival to be constantly attuned to the natural environment because it provided us safety and security 
or it killed us if we weren't paying attention. You know, we got eaten by predators. We froze in the in the in the cold rain. We didn't find shelter before the the first blizzard came. You know, we had to be constantly attuned to the natural environment. And so, parts of our sort of primal brain are really attached to the natural world for our own safety and survival, but also for that serenity that you were talking about, Jess. When you go to the mountains and all of a sudden you feel this sense of calm and ease. That also can be a tra- traumatic experience if a child has never had that experience. A Absolutely. forest could be terrifying Absolutely. to them. You know, yeah. I've given trail um, walks with with kindergartners who grew up, you know, as we keep saying, the concrete jungle, but in a city and in, in a really densely urban environment. Five-year-olds that are clenched to my hands because all that they have been taught is this is where the bears live and the snakes live. And oh my gosh, are we going to make it through this 30 minute hike? You know, whereas those of us who have been so lucky to grow up in these, these natural environments, it provides such a sense of calm. So, uh, you know, it goes back to kind of those early sort of um, both modeling and words that, that we are exposed to from caregivers as to whether the natural environment provides a place of safety and serenity or a, a very scary or, or traumatic place let alone thinking about a child who is growing up in areas that are already ravaged by climate change, where um, perhaps their family was able to farm the land. And now um, due to over farming and climate change, now that, fa- that that land doesn't provide for them anymore because it's become salinized or it's um, the it's just blowing away in the, in the wind. And so what does that do to our attachment to place as well? When, when a place we trusted at one point now is, is a place that terrifies us because it doesn't provide for us anymore. When you're talking about the five-year-olds in the woods, it was reminding me in, in my younger years, I was a wilderness instructor in Maine and I worked at a therapeutic wilderness camp and I loved it. But I, I remember having some internal struggles of these, these young adolescent girls or taken from their home, right? For whatever reason and put in this wilderness camp. And most mm-hmm. of them came from environments with limited exposure to the I don't want to say natural role because I'm sure that they lived in places that they could go out there, but not like this, right? And I think the purpose for the parents is like, oh, we need to kind of shape their world up, right? They need to kind of have this experience. But for some of them, those first couple of days was a little bit traumatizing, I'm sure. Yes. We can't miss out on getting some advice from you. What practical steps schools can do to foster every faction of humane education, but specifically what, what we can do to help our kids attach or reattach to the natural world? That's a great question. And I'm always so put in my place and humbled every time I have the chance to talk to a classroom teacher now. I've been a classroom teacher in the past too, um, but things have changed and continue to change. And I really worry about the burdens that our classroom teachers are under, not just for teaching, you know, basic skills and knowledge and whatnot, but but just that our, our youth are just under such trying times, whether it's in their family family and the broader society. Um, But in answer to your question, I think some of the easiest things we can do that doesn't require, you know, taking a class or going to a workshop, although those are wonderful too, and we provide those, of course, for teachers, but in just 
allowing ourselves to think about how we want to talk about the natural world um, and other species. So an example I give all the time, and this is not at all if if this has happened and, and these are words that have come out of a teacher's mouth. This is, you know, oh my gosh, I make mistakes every single day, but this is just an example that I give. So we see a spider on the classroom wall um, and a student maybe is afraid and the teacher oftentimes, not always, might even accentuate that that fear, right? Immediately joining in the screaming and the shrieks and finding a newspaper or the bottom of a shoe to immediately kill the spider because we've been enculturated to fear that spider. What if we totally turned that around? What if the teacher turned that around and say, hey, y'all, this is really cool. Look at this little visitor that we have in our classroom. Let's watch him or her for a little while. Let's see where he or she lives. Which corner of our classroom do they call home? Where are they finding food? Are they a web building spider or are they sort of a predatory spider that um, sneaks up just like a wolf might? Sneaks is not a very positive word, but you know, uses their power of camouflage to find and, and subdue their, their prey or their food. Let's learn about him or her. Let's, let's hey, let's have a, a naming contest. Contests aren't also... <laughs> all that great. I'm pulling out all the wrong words today. But let's think about, you know, what what kind of name can we give to this little spider? Or, I mean, we could apply that to a, a, a rat or a mouse that is seen in the cafeteria. Instead of immediately reacting in negative ways, let's ask questions about who that animal is. What do they need from us right now? Can we set a live trap? Can we, if we really don't want to share our space with that spider, let's figure out a gentle way to pick up that spider and take him or her outside. So simple things that we can do that immediately starts to instill awe and wonder and respect and this feeling of wanting to live in harmony instead of this human domination of all other species in the natural world. And I also want to honor that some people really do have distinct phobias um, about these spiders. So if that individual teacher doesn't feel comfortable removing that spider, then let's find somebody else who who wants to, you know, or who in the, you know, sort of the operations of, of the school might set up a live trap for rats and mice instead of the horrific traps that we often, or the poisons that we use. All of these things are simple, simple things. And even though it seems like it, we need more than that, it's that, I don't think we need much more. I really don't. And then we think about maybe our school needs to expand. We need more space. And there are trees that need to be cut down. Have a conversation about that instead of just saying, oh, this is what humans do. Trees are just collateral damage in our need for growth. No, let's talk about those trees. Let's talk about the sacrifice that they are making if we have to kill them. Let's talk about that, what that means for our school. We're going to lose shade. We're going to lose a natural cooling system for our schoolyard, even maybe for our building. Let's talk this through instead of allowing our children to just think, "Mm, this is just what humans do. So that's just a, a little bit of things because Steve, I just, I really worry about our nation's teachers. They're just under so much pressure. So I don't want to make their job harder, but those are just some tiny sort of reframes that maybe teachers could do to incorporate humane education into their classrooms. No, I really appreciate that answer because I think it's also healing for our teachers to be more connected to the environment. And, And certainly now, during what we've all going through and, yes, and and loss of some freedom of movement. I will say this, it has been for me during this pandemic, a more 
conscious reconnection to nature has mattered more to my survival and healing and sometimes joy, even in the midst of what this is. But I, I can't, I can say personally how powerful it is. I'm just so wanting to see that transfer to schools and children, because I think school can be a, a pretty good sense of place if we can make it that happen. I think obviously in this time of COVID, right, of kind of, yes, like you said, Grainer, like we're we're seeking a little bit more of this connection to nature, but bigger for me internally is just this equity piece is kind of ringing loudly in my head. Where are the inequities in access to these regulating, centering experiences? And at the same time, it's, it is somewhat of a privilege, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very privileged human that I can get in my car and drive somewhere that I feel safe enough to do that, that I have the financial, socioeconomic status to do that. That has to be recognized, I think, as well. And I, and I do think bringing that into school in an ideal world can begin, I mean, that's what education's for, to begin to level the playing field, right? Bring equity back into it. And so if we're giving this experience in school to some students that might not be able to have it. And again, it doesn't need to mean like, yeah, we go on a field trip, the mountains, but what can we do to start le- leveling the playing field so that this imbalance balance is slowly becoming less and less. Well, Jessica, you kind of inspired me to think of, well, another question in a way, but is there a connection then between kind of what I was talking about and what Jessica's talking about, the, this empathy we are gaining with our environment, does it transfer to empathy to other human beings? Or I don't know if that has happened in your work. I, I think we sure hope so. And those three systems you talked about that they're kind of a trinity of a connection. Branch off on that one, Doc. (laughs) Sure, I would love to. This is one of my favorite stories. I'd still almost get teary thinking about the magic. I mean, I know I shouldn't call it magic, but so in one of the camps that we ran, just happened to be four boys that came to the camp that were best buddies back at school and in their neighborhood, et cetera. And they were just slightly older than most of the kids in the camp. And they kind of, to be honest, were a little bit bullyish. They were kind of rough and tumble and whatnot and bullyish with the, with the younger children. But as we started moving through the lessons where they were bonding with the animals in the program, I will never forget this. It is seared into my brain. It's one of those happy things that is seared into my brain. I will never forget the oldest and the largest of these boys. Um, And I'm sorry that it just happened to be boys. It could easily have been, (laughs) um, not been boys, but watching this boy teach a younger camper who just happened to be a very tiny girl, uh, how to take care of the bunnies. He went from Mm. this rough tumble kind of um, brash young man to kind and nurturing and gentle both with the bunnies and with the the other camper and i i was just blown over i had read in textbooks that this should happen you know as we're building empathy with the natural world as we're building empathy with other other animals and especially those who are so much meeker than us that are so much more vulnerable than us then we sometimes see that transference of connection and empathy and compassion and we started to see this in our in our camp experience so i'm thank you for asking that that question i don't know that it would always happen and i have seen it happen a few other times but gosh that's something that should be tried and tested some more <laughs> yeah I'm, gl- I'm glad I asked the question because I love the story. And it seems transferable. I was going to say, I've seen it in schools too, right? When we've had the privilege to partner with dogs in the, in the educational environment, right? Whether they come in to help with reading or just kind of be a social support and say hello to the kids. I have stories beyond stories of students that I just 
I'm kind of floored, like their whole personality changes and they become caregivers and mm. get on the animal's level and ask everyone to kind of be quiet. So let's, let's keep this animal safe. And like, I vividly remember we had this one kid that was just had a lot of struggles and we were working with a, I couldn't, this was years ago. We were working with a therapeutic farm and they brought a, a pig to out to our big, we had a huge green space and they brought the pig out and the kids took turns kind of going and just kind of watching. And he had to sit and wait for his turn. And everyone's like, this is a God-given miracle. They had never seen him sit for longer than, no, I'm not even joking, 30 seconds. He sat for about five minutes, staring at the pig, waiting his turn. And then when he got to go see, I mean, it was, I mean, all of us were like choked up and watching it. So I do think that there are those, those stories out there of just that connection and we can do it in education. There's just no, no other reason to not do it. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. Oh, wow. we've got lots of them. We've got lots <laughs> <Yeah>. of them. <laughs> Sarah, I can't thank you enough for joining us. I feel like we just we just started chipping away. I think there's actually a, a ton left that we didn't even cover, but I think it's a really good place to start for those that are interested. Any resources or things that you would suggest? Yes, absolutely. I think the one of the most beautiful aspects of um, humane education is the plethora of resources that are available absolutely for free. And so I would definitely say um, that there are several organizations that I'm affiliated with, and then the one that I work for, of course, but there's the Institute for Humane Education. They're actually based in Maine. Uh, you mentioned um, working there for a while, uh, Jess, and they have numerous lesson plans already developed ready to go download for free. So the Institute for Humane Education, there's also an organization um, that I'm on the board of, the Humane Education Coalition, also literally hundreds of resources available for free download to lots of different organizations. There's also an organization called Heart that works with teachers as well. And then I I will just mention that there are three organizations in the United States, at least, that provide training everywhere from a certificate to an entire master's program in humane education. And so those three organizations are the Academy for Pro-Social Learning provides a certificate, the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, where I work. We also provide a professional development certificate that's actually designed for teachers, social workers, and parents. So anyone that's kind of working with with youth and also even with adults. And then the Institute for Humane Education provides certificates as well as full master's programs in humane education. So hopefully that's a a range of everything from free to things that, yeah, you do have to pay for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you again for being here, um, expanding our minds. And thanks for doing the good work. This is is the kind of stuff that's really going to make a difference and we got to get it out there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all the great work you're doing. And I'm just honored to be a part of your podcast. So I look forward to following everything that Intricate Roots is doing. Thanks for all of your great work. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah.